Hump Day, Oregon. I'm Finn J.D. John, FJ at OffbeatOregon.com, and this is the Daily Offbeat Oregon History Podcast. It's Wednesday, so this is an archive show, but it last aired two to ten years ago, so unless you're a hardcore long-time listener, it's probably new to you. Thanks for downloading, and I hope you enjoy it. This story was first published on September 30th of 2018 under the headline, Oregon was the last state where juries need not be unanimous. Here we go. Editor's Note In April 2020, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled Oregon's practice of allowing non-unanimous jury verdicts to convict as unconstitutional. Finally, this article was written two years before that decision forced an end to the practice. It is ironic that Norman Rockwell's famous painting, The Holdout, appeared on the front cover of the Saturday Evening Post on, of all days, February 14, 1959. That date was Oregon's centennial, the 100th anniversary of the founding of our state, and The Holdout depicts a scene that couldn't happen here. That's because in Oregon, unlike every other state in the country, a unanimous verdict is not necessary in jury trials. It's been like that since the law was changed back in 1933. An exception was made for first-degree murder charges, but not for less serious forms of homicide. And Oregon's law was changed specifically to prevent the exact scene shown in the holdout, although the case that inspired it, instead of the lone woman on the jury holding out against a guilty verdict, it was the lone Jew. The law was changed in the aftermath of the 1933 trial of a local small-time gangster named Jake Silverman, who happened to be Jewish. Silverman's crime was the topic of an offbeat Oregon history column back in October 2013. Here's the story in a nutshell. A fresh-from-the-pen crook named Jimmy Walker had blown into small-time gang leader Shy Frank Kodat's boarding house speakeasy and moved in on Shy Frank's girlfriend, Edith McLean. One thing had led to another, and angry words had been exchanged, and Shy Frank had turned his back on him and left the room, and then Jimmy's gun had gone off and the bullet had gone through the wall and hit Shy Frank in the back. It was an accident, and it wasn't fatal to Shy Frank, but Shy Frank intended that it should be fatal to Jimmy, and Jake Silverman was tasked with the job of taking Jimmy for a ride and making it so. So, Jake borrowed his wife's maroon 1929 Studebaker President limousine, and, posing as a getaway driver who would take Jimmy out of town so that he could go into hiding, picked Jimmy up at the cheap hotel he was hiding out in. Edith accompanied Jimmy on what they both thought would be a ride into exile. They learned different when Jake stopped the car in the middle of nowhere near Scapoose, marched them out of the car at gunpoint, made them stand over the ditch so that they would fall into it, and gave each of them two in the back of the head with Shy Frank's thirty-eight. That, at least, was the story on which Jake Silverman was convicted. But not of murder. One of the jurors was not convinced, or claimed not to be convinced. The evidence had been copious but circumstantial. Most damning was the car, which several neighbors had seen driving out towards Scapoose and parking by the road just before the gunshots were heard. 
Very few people could afford maroon Studebaker limousines in 1933, so the chances that it wasn't Silverman were pretty slim. Then, too, a rogues gallery of seedy underworld characters worthy of a Silver Age Batman comic had been paraded into the trial to testify for and against him, and the overall impression was that he'd almost certainly done the job, and that if he hadn't, it wasn't because he wouldn't have jumped at the chance to. And Silverman's gallingly insouciant behavior in court made it even worse. But this one juror just didn't find it convincing enough to send Jake to the gallows for it, or even to send him up for a life sentence on a second-degree murder rap. So finally a compromise was reached. Jake would be found guilty of manslaughter instead. Manslaughter was good for a three-year sentence, which was something at least. Well, the public, when it heard the verdict, howled with outrage, led by the Portland Morning Oregonian. Obviously, Silverman was not guilty of manslaughter, the newspaper opined. Either he murdered Walker, either he murdered Walker, or he was not involved. Unspoken but understood by most was the assumption that the lone holdout had been a fellow Jew, and he or she had held out not based on evidence but tribal loyalties. And so the Oregonian led the charge to quote-unquote reform the jury system by making it possible to disregard one or two dissenting votes when necessary. And now, to be fair, the paper wasn't overtly advocating for the right to suppress minorities. The case they were making was that many fresh immigrants from countries with more authoritarian political traditions didn't have the right mindset to fully function as an autonomous person in a democracy, and that it needed to be possible to overrule one or two, you know, my countrymen right or wrong types, lest millions of dollars be wasted on multiple jury trials. They were also mindful of the fact that gangsters sometimes try to get to jurors and through bribes or threats get them to vote to acquit, like Alec Baldwin's character did with Demi Moore's in the 1996 movie The Juror. But as a practical matter, the change radically altered the distribution of justice for minority defendants in Oregon courts. For instance, if a Chinese person was on trial for a serious felony, and the jury was composed of ten non-Chinese and two Chinese Oregonians, how much more likely would the defendant be to get convicted if the two Chinese jurors could simply be outvoted by the others? And would that be a good thing or a bad thing? People in the 1930s would likely have said it was good because the Chinese jurors would, they'd claim, vote to acquit no matter what. People today would mostly say it was bad because people naturally empathize less with people whose ethnic traditions they are unfamiliar with. The entire problem, of course, is nicely illustrated and in fact actually celebrated in Norman Rockwell's painting, or in the 1957 film Twelve Angry Men, starring Henry Fonda, in which 11 of 12 jurors are eager to convict and hang a vaguely ethnic inner-city teen accused of stabbing, and the lone holdout turns out to be right. Good or bad, it soon became law. Responding to the pressure, the state legislature drafted a bill and passed it on for public vote using the Oregon referendum system. Except for capital murder cases, the conviction could be secured on a 10-2 vote. The measure passed comfortably. Over the years since 1933, there have periodically been challenges to the rule from defendants who were convicted by non-unanimous juries. Concerns about the law are especially noticeable in cases where one or two dissenting votes were the only jurors who shared the ethnicity of the defendant. Most recently, in early 2018, the state's prosecuting attorneys proposed ditching the law as part of a deal that would have repealed defendants' right to opt for a jury trial rather than just a hearing before a judge. 
From civil libertarians' perspective, that looked like a poison pill, and the effort collapsed when it became clear that they would oppose it. Meanwhile, it remains true, as of mid-2018, that unless you're on trial for murder or aggravated murder, you'll have to convince three jurors of your innocence to avoid being convicted rather than just one. And Oregon remains, or rather remained, until the U.S. Supreme Court dragged the state's prosecutors kicking and screaming back into compliance with the U.S. Constitution two years after this article was first published, remains the only state in the Union where that's the case. By the way, for many years, Louisiana also had a split-verdict law designed during the Jim Crow era to make it easier to convict black defendants. Voters in that state repealed the law overwhelmingly at the polls about three weeks after this story was first published in early November 2018. Oregon after that was the lone holdout and remained so until April 20th, 2020, when the Supreme Court of the United States by a 6-3 to three vote found the practice unconstitutional. Key sources in this story included works by Eliza Kaplan, Conrad Wilson, Shane Cavanaugh, and the Portland Morning Oregonian archives. Well, that's our show for today. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. This podcast is part of Offbeat Oregon History, a public history resource for the state we love, which is in turn a division of Pulp Lit Productions, a boutique publishing house that specializes in audiobook and regular book editions of stories from the classic pulp fiction era. Robert E. Howard, Algernon Blackwood, Edgar Rice Burroughs, and so on. More info can be found at pulp-lit.com. This podcast is covered under a Creative Commons license, type CC by SA International 4.0. Our theme music is by the Atlas String Band and was written by Carmen Ficara. Listen and download more at atlasstringband.com. Got an idea for a show I should do, or just want to say hi, or maybe you're going to be in Corvallis sometime soon with time for a cup of coffee or a pint of Hammerhead? Drop me a line at fj at offbeatoregon.com. Fresh episodes of Offbeat Oregon History come your way at around 6 a.m. every weekday morning. So if you're looking for the next one, you haven't long to wait. Till then, go fill up the rest of the day with good stuff. Bye now. Bye now.